Hi everyone, welcome to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding the light after perinatal trauma. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, birth trauma survivor turned podcast host. Today we are back with Laura Bethman for part two of her story. After finding out their daughter had a malformation, Laura and her husband made the decision to drive several hours from their home for her care. Tune in to hear what happens next. You're now at CHOP. Talk about after that first day of appointment, how much time passed between that first day of appointments and to when your C-section was scheduled? Seven days. Wow. So it was Thursday, and then my C-section was scheduled the following week that Friday. Yeah, that's a long time to wait. Yeah, we were staying in a hotel because we couldn't get into the Ronald McDonald house mm-hmm. because of COVID. So we had to wait for me to get a COVID test, which they weren't going to test me for COVID until the Thursday before her birth. And that was causing me so much anxiety on top of the anxiety of her giving birth. And knowing that we're going to have surgery the day, the second she exits me, I, they told me if I were to test positive, I would not get to see her for two weeks and I would have to self-quarantine. Oh my goodness. And that was like so hard to hear. And I just, it, I just couldn't even fathom. I was, I, I just like stayed in the hotel like constantly. And anytime we had to go out. I was wearing double mask. I had gloves on. I was like, I was so careful. And then I, I don't want to go into the craziness of that time period, but it's, I had so many people that were treating COVID. I had family members and friends that were acting like COVID wasn't a big deal. And here I am about to give birth, having so much anxiety. And I'm like, that's easy for you to say. That COVID's not a big deal. It's easy for you to make fun of people who wear gloves and wear two masks. You clearly don't have very much to lose. Wow. That, it was just so many things going through my head at that time and just so much anxiety. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Let's jump forward to the day that you gave birth and had the C-section. It was scheduled it was supposed to be scheduled for first thing in the morning but they were unsure of what the schedule was going to look like that day because they actually had a spina bifida they call it what's it called it's where they literally open the womb perform surgery on the fetus and put the fetus back in to the mother's womb i know what you're talking about i don't remember the term but yeah i've heard of that so they had one of those scheduled before quinn's birth and her surgical team and they told us that a lot of times moms will opt out last minute to do it because of course they're terrified yeah and so they weren't sure what this mom would do so they told us that we would be first on the docket if the mom backed out the mom ended up not backing out so we ended up having our surgery at noon we were just waiting around for them to call and well we got prepped earlier on 10 o'clock I went back and had my epidural without my husband that was the only time he was away from me the entire time they were incredible they allowed him to be with me every second of 
all of it leading up to the birth. And then I was back there for about 20 minutes by myself. And then he came back. Everyone was just so chipper. They were so happy. The anesthesiologist asked me what he wanted me to play. And I had him play Oceans by Hillsong. Oh, such a good song. I had just been (laughs) listening to it, like leading up to her birth. And it was like one of the biggest things that was giving me comfort. And so we played the album. It was like incredible because the prep work leading up to the C-section, I want to say it was around like 20 minutes. And when she was just about ready to be born, that's when Oceans came on. And it was like so incredible. I just felt God, his presence just there. Amazing. I was crying and my daughter was crying and it was incredible to hear her cry because we were so worried she wouldn't. Mm -hmm. they took her and away right away and it was a conjoining surgical room there was like a little window and they were waving from their room waiting for her and it was just incredible knowing like how many amazing caring brilliant professionals were there caring for just me and my daughter that's that was the feeling that I was hoping to get after her diagnosis was like that level of care that level of I care about you I care about what happens to your daughter and we're going to do everything possible to make sure that she's okay and there is amazing people I knew I wouldn't get to hold her because I asked that question leading up to her birth and they said there's just no time We have to assess her and we have to make sure she's okay. And they, she did allow them to do an x-ray on her because they just wanted to make sure that before they went in there, they wanted to just have everything mapped out. Yes. Yeah. Have everything mapped out. And, you know, they weren't sure if they were going to get to do the x-ray because they weren't sure how critical she would be. And she was well enough to, you know, let them do the x-ray. They got me cleaned up. Everything was good to go with me. And they put me, wheeled me back to the room. Me and my husband waited there. Her surgery was probably roughly an hour long. And they just kept coming to my room to let various members from the team, from my side, obviously, like the ones that were in there with her weren't leaving. But my people, like my anesthesiologist, I loved him. He would go into her surgical room and that's so kind for updates and come back and report back to me. And he he came back. And he's yeah. And he's he's oh my gosh, Quinn is doing amazing. She's such a badass. Like all these different things. <laughs> it was he was just so chipper and so amazing. And they all were just like, she is incredible. She's a rock star. She's killing it. And oh my goodness, it made me feel like we're gonna be okay. She's gonna be okay. After her surgery was done, the team came in so proud, wheeled her in, and they told us how well she did. And they, of course, she was sedated. It was definitely hard seeing her like that. We were just so thankful, and we just kept saying, thank you. Um, we took a picture right there with with her team, and then I just had to wait until my legs feeling came back in my legs to go down and see her which wasn't for another 12 hours and obviously oh I had to remove the catheter and all that fun stuff and I had to have 
first pee and <laughs> everything to be able to leave and go down to her. But the biggest thing that brought me comfort was just knowing my husband was there by her side like every second. And I, I was like, okay, she's not alone. I'm fine. I can be alone. I can be strong right now. You be with her. And it was a little hard just being by myself. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I can relate to that sentiment of being alone in a hospital room. And even when you were talking, when I was pregnant with Coco, I think in the moment I didn't realize I had this sense of doom. But now, retrospectively, I think that I did. There were several things throughout my pregnancy that I was like, yeah, I think that I knew something was going to happen. Oh. And I told my husband, if something happens, I want you to go with Coco. Wow. I think I will be fine. Or maybe I didn't say that. I can't remember. I told him, if something happens, I want you to go with Coco. I don't want her to be alone. Yeah. We had hired a doula and I told him, the doula can stay with me. It will be fine. And then when everything happened, the nurses actually told him, no, you have to stay on the floor since he's my medical proxy they told him you have to stay here and the doula has to go with the baby and so i'm so thankful that we had hired her so again like she wasn't obviously she had never met my doula Brittany, but at least like i knew someone was right there who i had met and trusted and it's such a comforting feeling and you were talking about how the anesthesiologist was reporting back and forth. And the day that I was extubated, I had failed multiple breathing tests. And so they thought that I was going to need a trait. And long story short, they decided to try and extubate me and see how I did. And I did okay. And I remember my nurse, Hannah, who was not even my nurse that night, she ran into my room and just gave me the biggest hug. And just like having that moment of, Someone seeing you as not a patient, but as a human who is mm-hmm. celebrating that moment. Yeah. And I think that, I think, because the reality is when you're in the hospital, a lot of times this is, that is, whatever the situation is, it's that person's job. But to have them remember, this is a person too. It's not only a patient, it's a person who needs some humanity, I think is so amazing when nurses or doctors or anesthesiologists think oh this is a person who needs more support and they go above and beyond to offer that support it's just astounding oh absolutely no I totally agree it I'm so thankful that you had that you know me too it's just the most comforting thing because you are in your most vulnerable state when you're in a hospital exactly so their job is very important And even like when I was in the hospital, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. And so my husband had shared that information with them. They didn't let, and I hate to say let, they honored that, even that sentiment, they honored really well and only assigned female nurses to me, which sounds sexist, but to someone who has had a man, who has had a man violate that trust, Mm -hmm. it was yeah, just special. I'm sure I no, I can I can't relate on the sexual abuse trauma, but this is a completely different topic. I recently an assessment done at the dermatologist and I just wasn't expecting like an older man to come in 
and assess me. And it, it was weird because I've purposely only had female doctors. That's just the way I, I roll. Like I've always had a female gynecologist and it, yes, it was odd. And no, it's not sexist. Like it's your comfort level. And that's amazing that they honored it. Yeah, for sure. I feel like we got a little bit on a tangent. So <laughs> let's talk more about when you were finally able to go down and visit Quinn in the NICU. I was able to go down. It was midnight that night and really hard seeing her intubated and sedated. I'm sure. It was just still incredible. The nurses, they put, I guess they didn't have like any of her stuff yet. So they put, they fashioned a little bow that they had on her head and she was completely naked except for her diaper and but they just wanted to present her to to her mama in that fashion and I just remember sitting in my wheelchair sitting down next to her and I put my little finger in her hand and she grabbed it and she clenched and I was like she knows she knows I'm her mama even though everything in me wants to hold her and nurse her and just do everything that would you would naturally want to do after you've just given birth yeah. to your baby I was just still so thankful in that moment that we were there and that we were she was getting the care she needed but it still did not it's it, it still didn't make the situation any less hard seeing her like that and absolutely I was pumping around the clock. The lactation consultants and the nurses were incredible because they knew my breastfeeding goals. After that night, I was able to give her colostrum on a a little like sponge tip. But that was really hard for me to do because it was amazing because I could sense it's like I knew her. She's my baby. Like I, it was like I already had yeah. this like unshakable bond, even though I had never held her. And Every time I would put the colostrum to her lips, she would start getting restless. And I could just tell that she just wanted, she wanted, she didn't want that. She didn't want colostrum on the tip of a sponge. Sponge, She wanted yeah. it to be held. She wanted it either from me or from a bottle. And it just felt so unnatural. But that was the hardest part, was seeing her, seeing her start moving get frustrated that and then them like up the ante on her on sedating her <laughs> that was literally the hardest thing to see because like I said it's just so unnatural absolutely to be born and to come into the world like that how long did Quinn have to stay in the NICU she was in the intensive care NICU for a week and then she was in the step-down NICU for five days to 12 days mm -hmm. total. Which they had told us to prepare for at least a month. Wow. And so the fact that, first of all, the fact that she didn't have to go on ECMO, which is like a life support machine for babies, was incredible. And the backtracking, the fact that she never developed fetal high drops in utero is a miracle in itself. Mm -hmm. Because that almost always happens with cases like hers where the tumor is so large mm -hmm. and that almost always puts okay. go you go into preterm labor unfortunately when those babies with ccams are premature the chance that it's not the chances are not good so yeah. thank god she she waited until term 
She didn't have to go on ECMO. And then she did, she recovered beautifully in the intensive care NICU. Everyone just kept saying she's doing incredible. She's doing amazing. She was extubated five days after she was born. So we did have to wait five days to hold her. Basically, in the intensive care NICU, it was all like, it was stages of feeding. And so it was like, it took a while for her to figure out the breastfeeding. And that didn't come until we got home. But at first it was, of course, the IV fluids. And then it was a feeding tube. And then it was the bottle. And they were showing us how to use the bottle. And then the step-down NICU. We nicknamed it the feeding farm because the only reason we were there for five days was she had to take so many ounces per feeding. And I was every time I would feed her, I would pray, please take all of it. Please let us get out of here. Because the step down NICU, we had to share with another baby. Uh. And it was really weird. And I didn't feel comfortable. When we first got moved there, I was like, we're never we're not leaving our baby. <laughs> Because you could technically close the door and be by yourself with someone else's baby in a room. Wow. And I did not like that. So my husband and I took turns and he took the night shift and I took the day shift. And which was really hard because naturally I wanted to be with my husband and our baby together. We I would go to the Ronald McDonald house and sleep at night and then he would go there during the day and sleep. But yeah, she thankfully only had to be there for five days. And then she was, we were able to go home. We didn't have to go home on a feeding tube, which was awesome. Wow. I love that you nicknamed it the feeding farm because after Chloe Ann's birth, that was the big thing, holding her oxygen and then feeding. So I think that, yeah, for (laughs) a lot of babies, although Coco, like, like she's even to this day, she's an eater. Like she will eat from the time she gets up until the time (laughs) she goes to bed. If you let the girl. That's so awesome. Like, girlfriend, we are not that rich. No, especially with inflation. You're like, yes. okay, hold on. <laughs> we have a budget. <laughs> we got to stay yes. on a budget. <laughs> anyway. Love on that protein. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, boy. So then after you were home, were you able to, were you and Quinn able to learn how to nurse and all of that? Yeah, so it was really interesting because in the NICU, it's like we were both, looking back, we were both too tense to allow it to happen because every time I put her to my breast, she just didn't care, just wasn't interested. She just Mm -hmm. immediately would fall asleep. Like, I think she just fell asleep every time she was in my arms. I think she just loved that comfort of me Mm -hmm. holding her. When we got home, we, as soon as we sat down in her nursery and I sat down in the chair, she latched. It was incredible. Wow. And she latched for a full feeding. And granted, it was with a nipple shield because that's what they had given me in the hospital Mm -hmm. to try to get her to want to try. And so we, which looking back, I wish they would have never given me the nipple shield because I don't think that was ever the issue. I think it was just us both needing to relax because it took a while to wean off the nipple shield. But yeah, we ended up going from exclusively pumping to exclusively breastfeeding. That's amazing. It was just a goal I had always had and pretty much the only thing I could control. And it almost killed me. I was like, I'm going to control this. Wow. That's amazing. I was talking to my sister this morning about nursing Coco and I was not able to nurse her 
Oh, they had debated of pumping me while I was on life support. So I was on ECMO. So I'm very familiar with ECMO. And so they had debated whether or not pumping me while I was on life support. And they ultimately decided not to because our pediatrician told my husband she can always try and relactate later. This morning when I was talking to my sister, she said that I guess I had mentioned to her because I was trying to relactate. I tried for two whole months and it it just never happened. Oh, my God. I was telling my sister, apparently I had mentioned it to her that I had tried to get Coco to latch. And at the time, I was not supposed to because I was on blood thinners that could have, they don't know, yes or no, but it could have hurt her. Like, A, your postpartum, your hormones are everywhere. You're not thinking clearly. And B, it was such a goal of mine that I was like, I want to try and do this. And apparently I mentioned it to her. And she texted my husband and was like, hey, Kathy told me she tried to latch Coco. And I was like, oh, so you guys are convoluting against me. (laughs) But long story short, it just, it wasn't in our best interest. My body just needed to heal. But again, like that was something that I was trying to control that I just needed to let go. And um, How long were you on life support? So I was uh, in a coma for nine days. I think I was on ECMO for seven. Wow. I'm not really sure. And then I was extubated on day 14. Wow. That's real. I've never even thought about like when you said pumping, I was pumping her full of things. I didn't think you meant actually hooking you up to the breast pump that would you feel like wish they would have done that or that's a great question i think a being a sexual abuse survivor i'm very again anybody in the hospital like you said earlier it's such a vulnerable time i don't know how i would have felt at least being a couple years out i think I wouldn't have wanted it. I would have wanted because I now and don't get me wrong. I cried for an hour straight after I decided to stop pumping when Coco was three months old. I cried and like really grieved that. And sometimes I'm even still sad about it. But I acknowledge I can be happy for you that you and Quinn had such an amazing nursing journey. But sad for me at the same time. Those like emotional duality is not like emotional duality is so important but I think like looking back I don't think that I would have wanted them to my my body has gone through so much trauma it just needed to rest yeah and that's okay yes I think I'm so glad you're at peace with that because I would agree like I it yeah it takes breastfeeding takes a toll I think that's I I think Mm -hmm. it's incredible just that making that decision and you need to be the best mom that you can be your child and and that means resting and healing from all the trauma you went through yeah and I think it did hinder our bonding Mm -hmm. because I wasn't awake when she was born I don't remember going to the hospital all of these different nuances but I think too it was okay now we're coming home like she came home before me so I got to meet her when I was still in the hospital but then like now I'm home how am I supposed to care for this this little person when I'm barely able to go to the bathroom by myself or shower myself. I mean, I remember the first time, like, I took a shower by myself. I, like, came out and was, I was so excited and, you know, said to my mother-in-law, I took a shower by myself. Like, how amazing is that? And I think with birth trauma, like, 
there's so many things that we should be talking about. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm trying to schedule another episode about delayed bonding because we didn't bond for nine months. And once I finally let, again, let go of trying to control it and also like her and my husband had such, they're thick as thieves. They had such a, 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 an amazing relationship. I think it's so precious because my older daughter is a mommy's girl, 100%. So I like that we have one in one. Regret. But for other moms, seeing their baby have such a special bond with their husband is really hard. And I think that's okay, too. It doesn't, there isn't a one size fits all. No, I agree. But yeah, it was actually a fellow AFE survivor. It was probably like, Coco was probably like three or four months old. And she told me like, yeah, I didn't bond with my baby for a long time, too. And she was like, it's okay. Like, you will get there. And we have a great relationship. Wow, that's awesome. So I, I think that it, too, is like a big piece of starting the podcast, having these conversations for the mom who's in the thick of it. And it's okay. You'll get there. Yes. Yeah. So last question for today. What do you love most about yourself post-children? I have gone through, I think it's called mat mat matrescence. Is that what it's called? Matrescence? Have you ever heard that term? I haven't. It's like an actual term for when the mother, when you go from not being a mother to being a mother and now being a mom, how transformative it is. So the fact yes. that there's like a term for that is just really cool. But that transformation was so huge for me. I love now just, I, I'm just such a huge advocator. Like I want the absolute best for my daughter, no matter what. And if that means maybe stepping on toes or hurting someone's feelings, like not in a mean way, not in a rude way, but just she comes first. She mm -hmm. always will. And that, that is just what, that's what brings me joy. That's, I know that's my driving force. Mm -hmm. That is what will always drive me forever now that I'm a mom. So that's what I love most about myself. That's awesome. I love that answer. And I learned a new term. <laughs> yeah, I think it's met, met, you Don't quote me. Matriescence or matrescence. It's something like that. But <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that so yeah. much. Thanks again, Laura, for taking the time to talk with me today. I feel incredibly honored to share yours and Quinn's story. What an astounding story. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much for having this space to just verbalize everything. Yeah. And I know I rambled a lot, but I think you listeners will stick with me. <laughs> no, you're good. You're good. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in today. We kindly ask you to head over to your favorite podcasting platform to leave us a review. It really helps with searchability and finding different podcasts. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, and you've been listening to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding light after perinatal trauma. Bye-bye.